Mr. Neff, why don't you drop by tomorrow evening around 8.30? He'll be in then. Who? My husband. You were anxious to talk to him, weren't you? Yeah, I was, but uh, I'm sort of getting over the idea, if you know what I mean. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Suppose I bust out crying and put my head in your shoulder. Suppose you try putting it on my husband's shoulder. That tears it. 8.30 tomorrow evening, then. That's what I suggested. Will you be here, too? I guess so. I usually am. Same chair, same perfume, same anklet. I wonder if I know what you mean. I wonder if you wonder. It was a hot afternoon, and I can still remember the smell of honeysuckle all along that street. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? Maybe you would have known, Keyes, the minute she mentioned accident insurance. But I didn't. substance a podcast aimed at being biblical thoughtful and human join us every other week as we engage the culture without the culture war i'm your host philip marinello joined by my just co-host tonight and friend uh trevor aiken yo what's going on everybody how are you doing tonight trevor you excited for another substance cinema your favorite type of show we do yeah i got the i got the mood set up right for this uh film noir i got the shadows i got Brightness dimmed on my display. I don't know. I, this is just, just trying to get very in the good audio for a noir podcast. Yeah. There, very. Just, anybody listening, just go ahead and put sunglasses on if you're outside, or uh, dim your lights, or um, if you've got Venetian blinds, you can like maybe get crack angry them about a little them bit. or like crack them a little bit. Yeah. Well, you got to be careful. That might mean you're uh, you're you're about to go yeah, down a bad path. There, that's my true. Guy. Make sure you can hear your footsteps. This, if you're new to The Substance, welcome. We're happy to have you here. Uh, the Substance is a Christian variety show. And now, every other week, we talk for about an hour or so about some things related to Christianity, culture, and the arts. Sometimes we have great guests on, like today. And previous guests in our library include Alyssa Wilkinson, Brett McCracken, Josh Larson, and Mike White from The Projection Booth. Uh, other times, we chop it amongst ourselves. We do long-form shows short form shows, all that sorts of stuff. And then at the end of the show here, we are going to be sharing some, or Kevin, uh, this time will be sharing some shout outs. Uh, like I said, we have a guest today here. We are joined by Kevin McLenathan of the Chicago Indie Critics. He's also the one of the co-hosts of the Seeing and Believing podcast from Christ in Pop Culture. Uh, welcome, Kevin, to The Substance. Thanks. It's really great to be here. And I, I can't wait to talk about this movie. This is one of my favorite movies, period. So I'm vibrating in my seat waiting to go. <laughs> I, I need right. to go back and check the dams. Yeah. I feel like we talked about this a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm glad that we can make it. It is November, So if you're confused, if you're like, why are they just talking about this old movie? Especially because this can be a special <laughs> drop, right, Trev? Four, four, maybe. Yeah, we say every... Yeah, we say every other week. I think this is going to be a bonus so that we can make it in in November here. So the reason we are dropping this is because it is November. That is where uh, film nerds like myself, like each, not every month of the year, but 
this whole month is kind of dedicated to the uh, crime films, primarily of the the 40s and 50s. It's it's a really good time. And today we're talking about one of kind of like the proto Hollywood noir. So Kevin and I connected on this a while back, and we're we're very excited to have you. I'm very excited, and uh, especially for making Trevor watch something. Trevor, had you heard of this film before? No. Okay. <laughs> I know you've heard it. You're vaguely aware of film noir, right, Trevor? So for the audience who maybe not know, Trevor, why don't you be the audience surrogate here? I text my dad, who's who's in his 70s, uh, about this film. <laughs> and he's like, huh, I think I've probably seen that one. Don't remember it, though. <laughs> I would be surprised if he didn't, even if he just caught it on TCM or something. Yeah. Likely in a previous November. Yeah, there you go. No, I I enjoyed it. It's really interesting, you know, kind of how the plot unpacks, and it's there's there's actually a lot of tension in the film. It's definitely kept, keeps you on the edge of your seat throughout. I mean, you kind of know what's going to happen, but you're still wondering how exactly it's going to break. And the character work they do as well, um, especially between the boss and Walter. It's super good. So it's it's well written and uh, not not like I don't know. I think sometimes when people think noir for whatever reason, I don't know if I'm getting this completely wrong, but they kind of think like Dick Tracy gumshoe kind of thing. And like this isn't quite in that vein, right? Because there's no like cops really or any that kind of style. But um, they they really get there through the tension, the dark themes, and the interplay between the characters. Really interesting. Kevin, as the resident film critic here and somebody who has a lot of passion for this film, why don't you give the audience a very brief introduction to noir and kind of your your journey with this film? How, how long has this been something you love? Well, okay. So uh, I guess to, to start with noir, uh, noir is a subgenre of uh, detective movies or, or, or crime films, kind of had its heyday in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There have been neo-noir since then, of course, that have continued the tradition. But when you think of the classic noir, you're probably thinking of movies that came out in the 40s and 50s, you know, deep shadows, stark uh, contrast between light and dark, hard-boiled detectives, Humphrey Bogart, uh, femme fatales, rain-slicked urban streets, and corruption everywhere (laughs) Mm -hmm. is, is sort of the the genre in a nutshell. And there's a lot of wiggle room within that. But I think Double Indemnity was maybe the first real noir that I ever saw. It was kind of my gateway into the genre. And I think it captivated me right away simply because of that starkness, I guess, that I mentioned earlier, where it's everything is just so... The line between good and evil is very clear, the characters may not see it clearly, but mm-hmm. it's always clear to the people in the audience. And I, I really appreciated how that kind of moral sensibility is shot through so many noirs where you mm. you know that the characters that you're watching are going to make very bad decisions. <laughs> and watching things unravel for them is thrilling in a way and also kind of convicting in a way too there's just a lot it's kind of galvanizing i guess to watch a movie with that kind of stark sense of morality and such a clear picture of 
the different forms, I guess, that that human depravity can take. Hmm. It's also a very writerly genre. Um, my first love was literature. Yeah. And the hard-boiled dialogue, you know, the, the famous sort of voiceover that you get in these so movies. I love it so much. So I good. I love it so much. Those it's one of so the things good. I said to When Phil, it's done it well, it's so good. Yeah, like when I was young, I really got into film noir. And this is kind of funny to admit, and I, I even felt a little silly talking about this. Uh, on the Projection Pod uh, episode, which I'll plug at the end of this, my gateway to noir was actually the uh, Xbox game series Max Payne, <laughs> and because uh, it was very noir drenched, especially the first two games. And I read this article, I think, in Game Informer that literally had like ten or twelve different old classic film noirs that in like influenced different aspects of the games. And I just made a list and watched them all. Double Indemnity was high on the list, and a bunch of other ones that they picked stuff from. And I, I loved. The um, just like you said, the, the way that it's written, it's constructed. I dude, like there's a podcast me, in there somewhere. All that? the movies that influence Max Payne, plus a Max Payne playthrough. Hey man, plus, like, everything has a podcast influence. now. I'm if that saying. game came out now, I'm sure there would be. It's nostalgia. But yeah, I, I I love just the structure of this. So this is a movie I've loved for probably about 20 years now. I, I hadn't seen it in maybe 10. Or more, and I'd forgotten a lot of the details, and I was just struck watching this, going, "Man, like, yeah, no, this is definitely a five star movie." I was like, "Is this as good?" Because like other things had gotten higher on the favorite noir list for me, so I was kind of, I was underestimating how much I was going to enjoy it on this rewatch, and I was like, "No, it's it's a classic of the genre for the reason, like, it was the first big studio, big splash one, but it did just about everything right, and I loved it." Mm -hmm. Yeah, the it's amazing too that I, I mean the great dialogue. Of course, it was co-written by Raymond Chandler, who is a giant of hard-boiled detective fiction, and he brings his A game here with the yeah. screenplay. And uh, it's also directed by you know Billy Wilder, who, in addition to directing this film, also directed another one of the all-time great noirs in Sunset Boulevard, which is just. Wilder knows how to make these kinds of movies and it there's no one better in my opinion. No, he uh he's incredible and those are two. And that's an interesting back and forth that a lot of film fans have and revisiting them both this month hmm. for November. I was kind of like I feel like they're they're both very much noirs. I I used to be like mm, the Sunset Boulevard actually a noir, but revisiting it I was like no, it it absolutely is a noir. And it's definitely I feel like the superior film. But Double Indemnity does the noir tropes so well. I mean, kind of go, Sunset Boulevard's definitely the better movie, but I, I can see why people might have it higher, Double Indemnity higher on the noir list than Sunset Boulevard, if I said hmm. that properly, actually. I might have <laughs> conflated those titles. Um, okay, we've talked about this for a little while now. Let's actually, for the listener who may be like, oh, this is kind of interesting here, what, what are we talking about? Uh, Kevin, you want to give us uh, an overview of the plot? Yeah, so uh, Double Indemnity, uh, it's a you know, 1944 film. Uh, it stars Fred McMurray as an insurance agent who encounters the uh, wife of uh, a richer man named Phyllis Dietrichson, played by the great Barbara Stanwyck. And uh, after their encounter, they kind of become entangled in this plot to murder Phyllis's husband, after putting an insurance policy on him and, you know, getting rid of 
uh, her husband getting a big payout into the bargain and laughing all the way to the bank. Um, the very first scene of the movie, however, is Walter Neff, the insurance agent, recording his confession saying, I didn't get the woman. I, I did. I, I can't remember the exact uh, line, but he, he said, I did it all for money and a woman, and I didn't get the money, and I didn't get the woman. And the rest That's... of the movie is letting us watch all it all unfold from the hatching of the plot to the carrying through of the plot to the part where it all falls apart, hmm. which is, again, it's just a, a quintessentially noir story. You've got all the elements. You've got the, the morally corrupt sap. You've got the femme fatale. You've got the murder plot. You've got the naked greed. It's all there. Hmm. And you've got the, I mean, you talked about all the things you think of when you think of noir other than the obvious stylistic things like the shadows and the blinds and the, the, the cramped offices and the cigarette smokes. I think of like consequences mm-hmm. and, and most of them really do front load. And I I've always loved the structure. A lot of people abuse it and do it poorly, but when it's done well, I love the cold open of right before the end where like mm. you see the scene, like an extreme scene and you're like, here's how we got here. You see him getting out of a cab, slumped yeah. over. He's he's injured. He's not doing well, and he starts confessing. And I mean, if you are locked into the movie and not watching it on a phone or a tablet or something like that, he's like, "I did all this. I didn't get the girl. I didn't get the money." You're like, "You're in." It's like, what ha- what happened? Like, how did this guy get here? What happened? And then yeah. throughout the whole movie, even if you can sympathize with things, you're going like, "No, man, no. Like, this isn't going to end well." But you know it has to not end well, and and that's kind of baked into it. Yeah, yeah. Fatalism in noir is is, is a huge huge part of what makes the genre itself. Yeah, yeah. And there's enough like mystery about it. You know he's injured. You don't know exactly what is injured about him. You see him. He, he doesn't have use of like one of his arms, and so you're like, okay, there's he's obviously very injured, but. To what extent? I need to go back and rewatch also the dialogue he had with the elevator operator guy and just like see what kind of nuggets are in there because I can't remember right now what what stuff they talked about. But I there's probably some like barbs that are related to the the stuff that that's in that writing there that would be worth rewatching for. Yeah. So I guess, Trevor, as the new person to the film. What were your thoughts on, on the initial meeting of our two protagonists, antagonists, yeah. <laughs> our two main characters? When he first came by her house, what was your read on uh, on that scene? And we, we forget to do this sometimes. Spoilers. This movie came out in 1944, and uh, we're going to be talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. First, I was thinking about you driving all around, Phil. So I'm like, well, I'm glad Philip's not okay. in insurance sales anymore. So that's pretty great. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, not, I didn't not a to knock sell on life it. insurance. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> not a knock on insurance salespeople, but yeah, you know, the situations people get into, right. And just that, that kind of life. Um, and you know, he's kind of in this awkward situation, but like, he's, he's cool with it. Right. He calls on a house to sell this insurance and the husband's not there. And Barbara, uh, what, how do you say her last name? Stanwick. Stanwick. Stanwick is there um playing phyllis and had like just stepped out of the shower or something so it's kind of like this scandalous moment and one of the things too that's funny about this film and and what was interesting kevin when you're talking about like how there's a lot of moral clarity for the audience 
even though the characters are doing wrong, like, and they don't seem to see what's the clear moral thing to do is the fact that like the, the censors were kind of all over this film, right? They're like worried that it was going to like popularize crime for the audience or like make it easy for people to consider murder or things like that. Um, so it's just kind of interesting, right? Cause it's, it actually almost kind of steals the other direction, but there was a lot around this scene too. And there's just so much, well, I mean, no, famously, the background, like this movie, the book had came out earlier. The script took almost 10 years to be approved because it was deemed too salacious. So, I mean, yeah, what they got was about as salacious as it got in the 40s, and it took them a long time to yeah. get the green light to even make it. Yeah. It's a lot of well, salacious that's... talk about anklets uh, early on. <laughs> <laughs> so viewers discretion advised on that <laughs> um, and i mean the guy comes on strong and sleazy right off the get-go you're just like what in the world are you doing man this is somebody else's wife what are you talking about yeah he's spitting game from the beginning that's sort of like by the end of that first conversation he is yeah but going back and kind of thinking about that you know, he critically, walks right in like feeding her i don't want that was very strange. That was very strange. <laughs> I'm gonna walk in, and murder your goldfish, try to sell you some life insurance. Like, was, like we said, you know, this is foreshadowing. You know, black and white, total corruption of humanity, yeah. overfeeding goldfish. You know, it's <laughs> serious stuff. Yeah. Well, so try, we don't want to analyze a movie to death, but just like thinking about how the the choices and the temptations and the things build, he kind of is smart enough. To pick up something is up, and then when she's kind of asking her coy questions about this and that, he's like, "Look, like no, like yeah, <laughs> we're like yeah, like you should, you want your husband to have insurance and not tell him, and then oh, what if something were to happen to him? He's like, no, I'm not going to do this. And then she kind of feigns like, oh, like don't insult me like that. I'm just asking yeah. some normal questions. And then he kind of shifts into that, uh, yeah, kind of sleazy like. I'm yeah. also no, you're a silly old lady, but also you're a hot silly old lady, and I wouldn't mind coming back and talking to you again. Like it was, it was very so, interesting to try to get into his mind with it because I'm also thinking, well, it's almost as if because there's like a scene where he kind of is talking, you know, he's narrating about his his inner struggles on this, and it's almost as if the the woman's a temptation, but he had prior set up in his mind too, like you know if i was gonna do it you know i know the game so well like it's almost like he's too full of himself he has so much pride that he's like i know the insurance game so well that like if i was gonna do some fraud this is how i would do insurance fraud like i know the perfect way to do it and now he's got like just this extra temptation from another angle to kind of push him over the edge it feels like yeah, well, you know, one of my favorite TV shows of, of the modern era is Breaking Bad. And one thing that I really like about Breaking Bad is the uh, the notion that, you know, Walter White's a bad guy, right? Like he does so many bad things over the course of that show, but he starts out as kind of this milk toast high school chemistry teacher. But the whole point of the show is that the 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 meth kingpin who murders and lies and manipulates was always within Walter Weiss, even mm. when he was just the milk toast chemistry teacher. He was always the meth kingpin. He just needed a slight nudge to mm. kind of let all of that come out. And I think that that's kind of 
what we see in Walter Neff in this film is that he always kind of, he had it in him to murder and to uh, lie and to get ill-gotten gains. All he needed was just somebody to coax that out of him a little bit. Mm. And it doesn't, it doesn't need a whole lot of coaxing. And that's just, again, it's so quintessentially noir that, you know, there's kind of a facade of civilization over humanity and mm. it doesn't take all that much for that to begin to to fade away or to get eaten through by the darkness underneath. Yeah, that's true. I wonder if we'll be using it for the audio at the beginning of the episode. But I, it's it's really good writing. But uh, his when they're flirting right before he leaves, and he asks her if she's going to be wearing the anklet again. And she says, like, I wonder what you mean by that. And he, he kicks back at her. I wonder if you wonder. Like, we both know what we're talking mm, about here, lady. here. Like, by the end of that initial encounter, Crazy. he both knows it's not a good idea, but is also kind of wildly, like, from the beginning, it seems like the boulder is already rolling downhill and it, it kind of can't be stopped. You think he's, like, for a moment, you think he's going to do something smart, you know, when he turns her down, but it's just. It is, it's like that sometimes, too. Like, people, like, kind of fan, like, they have a morality that, that's, like, saying, like, hey, I know what's going on here. This isn't right. But there's time to rationalize. There's time to talk yourself into, you know, these kinds of things. And, and um, yes, I love what you said, Kevin. Like, I, I think that's true. It's like there's, there's this darkness that's covered over by a la- layer of civilization, but just the right opportunity, the right thing. And it comes forth. And this is based on a true story, right? Like the, the novel based on a novel. Ins- and then the, the novel, novel was based inspired a by a woman who did conspire with the life insurance salesman to kill her husband. But all the details were, Oh yeah, sure. A woman conspired to kill her husband. And then James Kane wrote a novel and then it's, it's several degrees removed. It didn't, right. this wasn't, it doesn't like happened, open up yes. with, with like a guy on crutches based on a true Washington. story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked yet about the third main character of the story, the one to whom mm. uh, Fred McMurray's character is confessing at the beginning of the movie. Uh, on this rewatch, man, maybe my favorite <sighs> character in the movie. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Edward, Edward G. G. Robinson's um, Keys. Yeah, yes. he says, I love you, Keys. Barton Keys. So good. He's a fantastic actor in a fantastic role. And I'm so grateful he took the part, too. Uh, in the previous decade, he was always the guy on the poster, the top name of the movie. And uh, he plays a supporting role here. I love it when good quality actors, movie stars or not, but people who, who are good at what they do and who have enough uh, humility to take a good role in a good movie. Um, I, I read about it, read up on it the last couple of weeks here. He was very close to not taking the movie because by the time uh, in the mid 40s, he still had starring roles after this. But it was kind of the, oh, is he kind of going down a tier? Is he getting a little bit older? And he goes, well, I don't know if I want to take it because it's not the lead. And eventually Billy Wilder convinced him to do it. And I mean, he kind of stole the show for me, this feeling. I mean, you could argue that the central relationship of, of the film isn't the romance between Walter and Phyllis but actually between Walter and keys. Absolutely. The last line of the film is I love you too keys. It's, you know, (laughs) they've got a deceptively close relationship. And 
I think that's part of the reason why Robinson is so fun in this film is because he's kind of got this, you know, crotchety exterior that he puts up where he's, you know, telling off everyone around him. And he's, he's like the old caricature, like newspaper, like he's, he's the boss of the insurance office. He's the guy always with a cigar, like telling people to get Mm -hmm. out of his office and knowing all the angles and stuff like that. But I'm glad you brought up that last line. It really is about like, the love that these two guys have for each other, these coworkers and friends. He's always lighting his cigar. Like these are guys. And he who, thinks highly of Walter. Like he, he thinks so highly of Walter that he he didn't see it coming at all. Yeah. Well at the at the end of the day, it, it's almost like Keys is kind of the audience surrogate in a way. He's Keys is trying to get to the bottom of things. And at the end of the film, you genuinely see in Robinson's performance that he's disappointed and appalled that walter descended to that level uh because he never in a million years suspected walter had that was capable of that kind of awful crime and at the end when when he uh turns the tables and he's the one who lights walter's sort of last smoke before Mm. his trip to the you know to the courthouse Mm. you, you get a sense that that that's where the tragedy really lands it's not we didn't just watch a bad guy be bad for an hour and a half and now the movie's over we watched the bad guy be bad and then we watched his best friend who feels genuine affection for him be disappointed and disillusioned that this person they thought so highly of could be so awful and do and make such terrible lapses in judgment yeah you know one thing i just thought of too you mentioned this this last line i love you two keys and it's very interesting, you know, like you're saying that I, I agree with you. I think that that their relationship is the thing that kind of ties the film together. It gives a lot of meaning to everything that's going on. It brings all of the emotional tension is around like him and Walter and Keys being in the same room together and knowing that now Walter's living this double life in front of him that it just tears you up the entire time you're watching it. But it's interesting that love in light of Phyllis's character saying at, at the end of the film to Walter, I'd never loved you or anybody. So like it, you have like the traditional like guy gal, like kind of romance thing going on, but it's all wrong from the start. because She's a married woman, too. And because of all awful things that they're really doing, that's actually the basis of their relationship. <laughs> and and but he's pursuing that like that's love when he really has it in a different form over here like he had like he's he's lonely but he has relationship like it's ah, there's just so much going on there well that's an interesting question if we want to get back to well, what is typically thought about is uh the illicit romance and the murder plot at at the heart of this movie like what is that like i don't think that Really, if we think about it very much, I don't think we could say that either one of them really felt like it was love at all. I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't know if it's a a romance. There's definitely lust there. I mean that yeah. that anklet yeah. stands in so much for a whole host of associations. So obviously, yeah. because of the the Hayes production code, uh, making sure that nothing too racy made it on screen. We're not going to see them, you know, in bed together. We're not going to see anything, quote unquote, happen. But there's a whole lot of 
sexual tension in mm-hmm. their interactions, but there's not a whole lot. You don't get the sense from the performances that they really care deeply for each other. They tell each other, I love you, but it kind of seems like it's almost a, a power play. Like they're, they're navigating power dynamics more so mm-hmm. than engaging in a romance. And I know it's an older film, but I mean, I've, I love the the movies from this period of time. You can maybe put some of it off to that was the style of movie back then. But even just the way that Walter calls her baby, it, it never seems like warm. It seems very matter of factly, like it's either objectifying or like ironic. It's not like a term of affection for her. Well, the way and he McMurray, her baby, like, I started chuckling whenever he'd call her baby. McMurray just he he delivers that word when when he says it in his lines. He 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 like bites it off. He goes, baby. You know, it's it's very sharp almost. And I think that that's kind of the way Wilder maybe uh directed these actors to act is like you're not in love with each other. You're trying to use each other to get something that you want. Hmm. And that might be kind of the, the mm. next interesting question is like, what do these characters want? It That's certainly isn't good like, like lifelong companionship with each other. Especially him. Like, I understand. And I mean, we can maybe even get into some more spoiler territory talking about Phyllis's backstory. Mm-hmm. But from his point of view, Walter goes in. He's a traveling, not traveling, but like he's on the road a lot, doing meetings, making sales with people all over in California. I'm sure he's met attractive women before he's walked into Phyllis's house. Like, what is it about her and this? Like, why does he start potentially thinking about murder and fraud just for this woman who he meets, who he walks into her house one afternoon? Like, what? how, how, how did that happen for him? And then obviously, like, I don't want a backstory of all of these characters. Like, the more I thought about it, I was just like, that's, that's such an interesting thing to happen. And like you said, maybe it's just kind of revealing the, the ways different people are broken and bent inside. And sometimes all you need is like the smallest push. Yeah. And maybe it's kind of hinted at that he has a soft spot for women in a way. Like we don't get a ton of backstory, honestly, for him and like what he's like. Like there really isn't much of that going on, but there are some small hints in the film that i don't know maybe he's a womanizer like he he's not settled down with anybody like he's and then also like it's his relationship with the daughter from the previous marriage so the the husband's daughter what in the world is he doing with this girl like there's there's, honestly there's moments where it's just like what is he doing kind of piecing together i guess the way he responds to phyllis and then the way he responds and I forget the ca- the character's name, but to the daughter as well. It's it, maybe he he is just I don't know. He was bored, and there was this, and he's swayed by this woman who also was out for money and blood. Apparently, I think one of the things that makes noir such a it, why it endures, like why it's more than just a hard boiled detective story that you sort of watch, you you consume it, and then you forget about it. I think what makes it so what sticks with you is that you don't really know why these characters do what they do. I mean, you, you know, why, why, like, you know, they want money. They, they want, they want power. They, they enjoy kind of the thrill of getting one over on another person, but there's no 
it's not psychologically realistic. It's it's mm. not like what is those base animal thing? It, usually, money, sex, and power. Those are pretty much the trifecta. It, it's I don't know. Like to me, film noir feels a, a little bit like classical Greek tragedy, where there's just mm. a you know a, a character has a tragic flaw, and they must see that flaw through to the bitter end. And that's kind of the whole point is you don't, mm. it's, it's, it doesn't necessarily make sense for somebody to just constantly give into their hubris until their life crumbles around them. And yet there's something about that that speaks very truly to the human condition that all of us kind of have things that, you know, flaw, personal flaws or things that we want that we'll indulge in or, or at least have to, have to resist in order to not um hurt those around us and hurt ourselves and i and that's something that noir gets at but it doesn't get at it by sort of laying it out in a very didactic way it's just something that has you scratching your head after you watch one of them thinking why was walter so drawn to phil's like he knows she's bad news why does he go back to her and there's no real good answer to that and then that makes you wonder well why does anyone make horrible decisions and that's kind of what it's that little pebble in the shoe i guess that keeps me coming back to the genre over and over you're right there is no there there is no good answer for the dumb stuff that he does it's just like yeah you found out like all right to give a little bit about phyllis's backstory like he finds out that it at least according to some testimony that seems credible enough from you know the daughter that she's already murdered once you know, maybe indirectly, maybe by being a bad nurse on purpose, but like there's kind of obviously there's a seduction involved and like there's all the same elements. There's a seduction, there's a murder yeah. and there's money. She's using her wiles and killing to make a way for her to come into money. And this has all happened before. And like the second you see it, like you would think like, oh, I'm the bird in the trap, like time to get out of here, move to Montana or something that that was kind of wild that, that it did not set off major red flags or maybe uh, he was just so bought into it when he heard that he's like, OK, like we need to I need to manage this night. That. I need yeah. to get the heck out of this right now. Like, oh, shoot, <laughs> this woman who I'm involved with likely. <laughs> killed her way to her curtain position that she just killed her way out of again or even worse that she just suckered me into killing like if you notice the way she talks about it a couple of times in the movie on the phone with him she puts it back on him Mm. all right like we're gonna we'll do it your plan we'll do it your way just the way you want just the way you said she was talking to him like that kind of like almost using her 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 sexual prowess kind of like incepting him with like, I want to kill this guy. I want to commit fraud. I want to get rid of the body when it's like, dude, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like in the first scene, you're like, ah, can't be done. Like you get caught right away. You get sniffed right out. And his best friend is a guy he knows is the best in the business at sniffing out a phony. So it's like, what are you doing? And like, even pragmatically, I know with the haze code and everything, you couldn't. Maybe it's alluded to that maybe they have sex one time, and he's gonna like murder, insurance fraud, disposal of a body, um, burning a bridge with his best friend. Yeah, and you're like, guy, what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, 
She is Barbara Stanwyck. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe we can talk about her performance a little bit because I'm a I'm a certified Stanwyck st- fanboy, and so I'm always curious to know kind of what other people make of of her screen presence because I I mean I think it's not always explicable why Walter would sort of go back to somebody he knows is bad news, but Stanwyck is just so good at dominating him. She knows how to manipulate him in a way that you, you like the audience can kind of see her wrapping him around her finger, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not done in a, in a sort of a, an obvious sort of Hollywood villain way. It's, it's so well-performed that I don't know. I, 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 I can believe that Walter would be sucked in by her, even yeah. even though she is obviously <laughs> not going to lead him anywhere good. And she's like the original Black Widow. I mean, like she's you know, it's like she knows exactly how to like maneuver and and get somebody into that situation, and then she's going to take them out. Yeah, no, <laughs> a lot of uh, I may have shared some of them with Trevor. I don't know if I did or not. A lot of letterboxed reviews basically say like. Yeah, it's pretty obvious, but I mean, if I were in his position, I'd probably do it too. And like, like you said, that's <laughs> that's natural. That's understandable. I I feel maybe a little bit more objective with this. I like Barbara Stanwyck some. I have not seen loads of her filmography. And for our audience, I don't know how much this is going to mean, but but Kevin, you'll probably know. my um, For a long time, and I think it's still probably my favorite, my favorite plot to kill the spouse noir was uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice. Mm-hmm. And whenever Lana Turner comes on screen, I'm like, okay, I get it. <laughs> it's a bad idea, but like, I get it. <laughs> like with this one, it's like, it's so obvious, but it's like, no, when you are, and, and this is a, a human thing as well. Like when you are wrapped up and you are fixated on something, whether it's right or wrong, like it's not about reason. It's not about logic. You're not thinking through consequences. You're just like, I want, I want yeah. the thing. How do I get the thing I want? And he's he's good at trying to get it. I want to circle back to to another theme and something that you mentioned earlier, Kevin, and that that's hubris, because really all of this is interlaced with just abject pride and arrogance. And I feel like a lot of what's going on too, like what you're saying earlier, like he knows his friend is the best in the business. There's a scene where it's kind of like, hey, come work for me. Oh, yes. I know it's less money, but there's all of this mental acuity to it. And like, you you know, you don't want to just be, he's like, listen, I can't be tied down. Like, I, you know, he has this, you know, self-perception. He, he knows like he doesn't want to be a pencil pusher. And that's that's kind of beneath him in a way, but like also just not fitting with who he is. But at the same time, he he, he does fancy himself that smart guy and he does see himself in that position in a, in a sense and it's like he wants to see in doing this if he can really pull one over like he really thinks he can do it like that's part of it is like he's gonna test his pride and i think when he sees this woman and he sees this house you know he, he sees himself in like a life that he sees a life that like he could have or that he's good enough for he sees this other dude, this oil guy, and it's like, well, I'm better than him. You know, like, it's almost like he's constantly thinking himself as better, as smarter, as um, in, in control. And, like, there's just so much arrogance that's even, even not instead of the lust, but even with the lust, kind of even driving some of the lust to, you know, it's, it's really about who this woman makes him. 
and and what that what that does for him and his own self perception, his pride, and all this kind of stuff that 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 really seems to just yeah push forward a lot of his actions. Like if, if I was going to say a motive, like it's just yeah that the sheer arrogance of a lot of what he does, which is ultimately. I mean, a lot of things get him, but that's ultimately what gets him. I don't know if we explain it specifically. Uh, the term double indemnity is uh, an insurance term that in, there are some policies that have clauses where if certain factors happen, they end up paying out double. So her husband has a $50,000 policy, and in the film, woo, it has a clause that Big if money. he dies on a train, it pays out double. So, like, let's kill him on a train. And, like, <laughs> they could have... Done it another way. And back in the day, 50K, like, it's also kind of wild. Let's risk our whole (laughs) lives for $100,000. Like, simpler times. Simpler times. Uh, My favorite, one of my favorite lines of just like, you know, time, whatever, when you're looking at it is like, man, somebody paid $30,000 for this, like, palatial thing on a hillside (laughs) in California. And you're just like, oh, they spent... What, I, what can what I have would, that? Yeah, what it would cost me <laughs> to get a sedan today? Oh, okay. <laughs> House prices and 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 rent rates are uh, always fun when you when you watch movies from this era because different time for sure. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really like that scene that, that that you were talking about, Trevor, with the um, where Keys invites Walter to work under him as a claims investigator rather than a salesman. And of course, Walter begs off because it would mean a pay cut for him. And Keyes' parting shot is one of my favorite lines in the entire movie. He says, you know, I asked you, Walter, not because I thought you were so smart, but because I thought you were a shade less dumb than the rest of the outfit. I was wrong. You're not smarter, Walter. You're just a little taller. And it's... A great, I mean, it's just a great line. Like, that's a great parting shot. It line put in the characters. It's so good. It's so mm. good. Um, but it's so telling also of where Walter is. Keys kind of gives him a, tries to sell him on, on taking this job by, you know, playing up, you know, it's about integrity. It's about using your smarts. It's about making sure that uh, people don't try to pull a fast one on us. It's, it's all about upholding the truth. And Walter's like, yeah but it would be $50 a week less per month. So no thanks. And, and he, he lets it go. And that's, again, it's, it's telling just about where Walter's priorities are. And it's another signal that this guy, if it wasn't Phyllis, it would have been something else that would have gotten him in the end. Hmm. And which makes the whole thing more heartbreaking to me thinking about that. What he's really saying is, Hey, like, I think so highly of you. I would like to mentor you directly. I know we work at the same company. I know we're work friends, but like, I want you on my team. I'd like to mentor you and possibly be like, be the guy who comes behind me in this line of work. Like, I think you could do wonderful at this. And, and maybe he has other prospects and stuff, but the movie really, the way it highlights their relationship, that scene, watching it back, knowing everything, it's like, man, this, he had all the outs. He had somebody like Trevor said, who had true like love and care for him, and he's like, "No, I'm good. Like, I'd rather have my money and in my scheme." Mm. And the the whole time he's getting hounded down uh, after he commits the crime, and like it just immediately starts unraveling. How tense was it? I had forgot. I don't. I don't know when the last time you saw it, Kevin. I know you, you really like this movie. You've probably watched it more times than I. 
I completely forgot about the uh, the car at the train. Like mm-hmm. my my throat <laughs> fell into my chest when the car didn't start. I was like, I know this isn't where the movie ends, but when that car didn't start, I was like, whoa! Like the music cue, the way they did the sound, like that was very effective. One of my favorite scenes in the entire film. I mean that that scene you're talking about where they they've just committed the crime and they're trying to get get away and the car won't yeah. start is is a great moment like, of suspense. Here, One of my favorite. Let scenes a man in, do it. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> true. That, he had the magic touch. That's true. Good thing for them. But the the scene that I'm thinking of is uh, it, it's towards the end where Keys is kind of like he sniffed something's wrong and so he visits Walter at his apartment after Walter has told Phyllis she can come up to visit. So we know that Phyllis is on her way. And there ain't no cell phones. (laughs) Right. There's no way to clear off. And Walter has to sort of try to get keys out of his apartment before Phyllis comes up. So they don't run into each other and give the whole game away. When that door opens up and he's there, I like, I got goosebumps. I was like, I don't remember that either. Like, Mm. And he's just standing there. You're like, they're done. But you hear that bell they're ring. And you're like, it's way too early for Phyllis to be there. So like, what is going on? And then it's him. And you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> it's it's a great scene of suspense. And I think it's also an interesting thing about noirs. Because in that moment, you, you know, you're you're feeling the suspense. But you're if you think about it, you kind of wonder, well, what if, yeah, what, who am I rooting for? Why am I feeling, who am I yes. feeling suspense on behalf of? Mm. Uh, and you kind of ha- are forced to say like, you, you, you want to root for Phyllis to succeed in avoiding keys on the way up. You want to, you, you kind of want That's true. Walter in, in a way to not get caught quite yet. And, and you know, you know, obviously keys is, is the good guy and Walter and Phyllis are the killers. And that I, I guess that response is something you kind of have to reckon with as a viewer. Is like you, the suspense comes from wanting them to get away with it somehow, while also knowing that they really shouldn't get away with it. Yeah. And and that kind of tension is really productive. And again, kind of, it's what makes noir so something you can come back to again and again. Is you, it produces responses in the viewer that are very interesting to interrogate once the movie's over well and it feels like every time that you've done something that you shouldn't do and know about it and are afraid you're gonna get caught you know what i mean like that's what it feels like watching you're like oh shoot like man like sin's gonna find these goes these guys out like for real or when keys brings the uh the medford man from the train to his office oh come on walter like duck dodge we put your hat down like that uh because when, when he started to look at him, I was like, come on, Walter. But then you're like, no, like, am I rooting for this guy to get, like, literally get away with murder? And you're like, okay, well, and I think Trevor's exactly right. You just, it reveals and makes you kind of wreck, or you don't have to reckon with it. It's a, it's fun, suspenseful entertainment. But if you want to tap into the substance a little bit, you kind of can ask yourself some of those questions. It can be both at the same time. And I think that's, that's, why I love the movie so much is you can't. It's not enjoy. a didactic like, thing. It's a right. movie, mm-hmm. and then you can enjoy the different aspects of the movie, but then also go like, "What does that say about me?" You know, one of the things that I was thinking through the entire film was just like, and he does this thing, and it just everything that he thought was gonna go a certain way, he thought he could just do it really clean and do it really smart, and you know, maybe be a little just lay low for a second. 
and then it'd be over and he could just move on with his life and he would still be the Walter he was before he committed murder. And the moment he crosses that line, he's a different person that he's, he's a crook the rest of the movie. And in all of these interactions, when he's like, it corrupts everything. Like he's having to constantly play this role and, and act, you know, he's an, he's an actor playing a character, playing a character. It was like, you know, <laughs> he's, he has to constantly contort himself. And there's this constant, and it just feels so like, it's such a good, like, I don't know. I'm I'm losing the word, but like basically an inoculation against wanting to ever do anything like this. It was just like it would be so horrible all the time having to live in that awful, gross, double life reality that you don't even that you you feel like he never even wanted in the first place. Like that was not part of it. He just wanted the payoff. He wanted, like he says, you know, I killed him for the money and for the girl. And I didn't get the money and I didn't get the the girl either. And it's like, you know, he, he thought he could do all this stuff. But in the end, now he's having to play off this other guy. He's having to lie and he's having to pretend to his friend. And he's constantly playing this shell game of like, you know, have to be in contact with a woman. But don't let anybody see that I'm in contact with a woman. Like, it's awful. It just feels awful. Kevin mentioned um, the way that it's both entertaining and not didactic, but has a substance there. One of the things that I wrote down that was the dialogue beats you over the head, but it's also good. Like there are people who like parody it funny on purpose. And then there's a lot of movies that are just bad that try to recreate like the, the hard boiled dialogue. But when he said, was it exactly? He said something like, um, how could I have known that murder sometimes smells like honeysuckle? I feel like that's basically a proverb. I feel like that's basically mm. something out of like Proverbs five or six where like, David is talking to his sons and warning them, like, be careful. Mm -hmm. Talks about, like, the way at the end of these things, when you pursue these things all the way, they lead to death. And, like, I feel like that's basically Proverbs by way of uh, Raymond Chandler. (laughs) No, honestly, to put a verse on it, and and I know I don't want to go too hard on that, but I, I couldn't help it because it literally came into my mind as I was watching the film, is in Proverbs 1, it says, you know, my son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. If they say, come, let us lie and wait for blood. Ultimately, it says a lot of things. Within verse 18, it says, these men lie and wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And like the person he That's really succeeds in killing much... is himself. And he says it, <laughs> yeah. you know, like I was a dead man. I didn't hear my footsteps anymore. Like I already knew. Oh, that's that's such a, a wonderful line too, where he talks about walking down a dark street and he can't f- hear his own footsteps. And it's the walk of a dead man. That's exactly <laughs> so good. It captures so well the, the essential feeling of I've done something very bad and I'm lost. Yeah. And it's it's haunting, honestly. It's it's wonderful. It, again, and the film doesn't linger on it, but it's there if you want to lead into it. Mm. Yeah. Such are the ways of everyone who's greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. That is, I mean, there's a synopsis right there. It's so good. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I do think, and you used, you made this other uh, scriptural allusion earlier, Trevor, where, uh, where you talked about your sin will find you out. And that's that's basically almost the like the mission statement of all noir is mm. your sins will find you out. Every noir is about somebody doing a bad thing or multiple people doing a bad thing. 
and eventually their sins find them and they will suffer the consequences or they'll suffer uh they'll suffer beyond even the the consequences they'll suffer more than they would have yeah a lot of times they'll Mm. they'll circumnavigate the consequence to utter destruction even greater tragedy i and i love what you said earlier about it like being like that greek classical like the tragic flaw yeah and you don't know when the other shoe's gonna drop sometimes you know like there's so many times during this whole thing where it can all go wrong right and you're like oh is this it is is this where he finally gets it and it's like and it, it it's so weird honestly it's so weird that it comes from the hand of phyllis at the end to get all the way down to the end and it's like this person that he thought he was going to form this bond this relationship with ultimately has decided nope um i'm gonna need to kill this dude and what did we think the um this the subplot phyllis's uh, stepdaughter's love interest who the film very clearly uh the, the zacchetti boy yeah very clearly he was also jerk. involved with phyllis illicitly but not to the extent that walter is not murderously as far as we know i thought it was a very interesting i mean we, we talked about noir being fatalistic in some ways but how Walter has a, a moment of grace and he stops him and tries to correct him before Walter goes to his own destruction. Like he's this kid is a mess. He's violent. He's erratic. He's not uh, a humble or a gentle guy. He's messing around with his uh, love interests, uh, stepmother, like all these things. But right before basically Walter goes to turn himself in, he goes, like, I'm going to try to put this kid, like, back on the right path. And I thought that was a very <laughs> interesting moment of grace <laughs> with or so pride. much, like, Once again. could be, could be. What do we think of that moment? I don't know. I, I think seeing it as kind of a glimmer of grace, maybe. I wouldn't say it's like a, a, a moment of unalloyed good. Like, Walter sure, is, sure. you know, he, it, it's not like he's made a turn in that moment. But, no, but we were sort of, thinking that he would maybe scapegoat this kid and just run away. Right. You, like just this kid would be the mark and take his place on the, in the electric chair. That was chair, the obvious basically. play, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's that was his plan. Before Phyllis, you know, shoots him, he thinks, okay, I'm going to make Phyllis and Zacchetti take the fall for what I did. It's and you know, it's it's perfect. It's the foolproof plan to my earlier foolproof plan. Um, <laughs> but the when when he kind of does kind of decide to okay i i've i've taken my my death blow essentially you know i'm i'm all washed up phyllis is dead there's no way out of this for for me anymore you get the sense maybe he f- sees a little bit of himself in zacchetti another mm. another guy who's not you know kind of uh, a little sleazy doesn't know what's good for him is um easily walked down a path to darkness you get a sense that Walter in some almost subconscious way wants to reach out and stop somebody else from walking over the mm. cliff's edge that he's already fallen from. Mm. Um, it's again, it's not like a moment of capital G grace, but sure. it, it's like a glimmer or reflection of he's not, he he's not a monster. Mm. He does have human feeling and you kind of see him in his own fumbling way, try to do that with Sicchetti towards the end. Yeah. Yeah, I never really saw him as a monster. I I almost felt like Phyllis was the more centrally evil character with him just like, he's just like a sap. And like, it just shows you how morally corrupt 
you could be if you're willing to just be led all around, you know, like in that way. Talk about a, a potential and, and maybe a false glimmer of grace. What did you guys think about the very end when she, her moment of grace, like she was so far gone and so corrupt that if she had a, if it was genuine, her moment of very lowercase G grace was not <laughs> shooting him a second time. Oh, I, <laughs> I think this is why Stanwick is so interesting in the role is because you're not sure how much she's play acting even in that moment. Yeah. yeah. Because we've seen 100%. her earlier in the film kind of play dumb or play like, you know, she's, she's scared. Like the, the, there, there's that earlier scene in the supermarket where she, where Walter tells her, you know, the plane's off, the plane's off. And she says, no, the plan's not off. We're going all straight down the line. And she takes off her sunglasses, just get, fixes him with this flinty stare. Mm. But she's done, had other moments throughout the film where, she, where she's been able to kind of turn on the emotions or make a last play for his sympathies. Mm-hmm. And that last moment, it's not entirely clear what she's doing. Is yeah, she yeah. sort of like having a moment now that she's, seeing her own mortality approaching like is she trying to genuinely reach out for human connection is another ploy for manipulation it's not entirely clear and i think that's because stanwick plays it perfectly where Mm. you're never quite sure if you've gotten to the bottom of her yet and uh i don't know i i I think it's again that's one of the reasons i keep watching and re-watching is because i i want to i want to know i want to know what what's going on yeah behind that face and you never really can get it like i wonder if phyllis i wish the fictional character the tv but like (laughs) yeah you really don't and it's like and it leaves her open yeah Yeah. i wonder honestly like she's a fictional character i wonder if phyllis even knows at that point like if she's not Mm. just so far down the rabbit hole i wonder if she really knows like she is grasping is it genuine Mm -hmm. is it manipulative is she working on like a backup of a backup of a backup plan, knowing that Nino's got like, what is she doing? I don't know. I don't know if she really knows. Like, again, I hate all the spinoff reboots, requels, sequels, all these things, but like, she is such a fascinating character. I, uh, it, it would have been interesting if they did some sort of, here's how she got here. Cause she's just such a, a fascinating mess. And like Kevin said, like you can't look away from it. It is so, it does reflect true humanity, but it's it's very complex and very broken. And when we look at it, we go like it. It can show you how how far people can go, like when they're when they've been hurt, and and how much they can hurt others. Hmm. There, but for the grace of God, so forth. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, with unwise yeah unwise choices. They- few of them lead lead to another one lead to another one and yeah any uh final thoughts anything we missed from you guys you guys wanted to mention i don't know i feel like uh just talking through it it's uh it's rewatchable for sure how cool does smoking look in black and white films <laughs> oh so final <laughs> that reminded me <laughs> I, I like that, that trevor and i both like immediately perked up and had something to say are you when talking you, about it's like little match lighting yes. tricks because yeah. it's the coolest what in the it's world great. how how is he like how do you do that how do you light a match with your thumb and then he can't do it because he's like dying at the end which was <laughs> perfectly played off of it the entire movie i'm like how does he do that how does he keep doing that 
We're we're a culture in decline. We can no longer like light a match with a flick of a finger. He's got the calluses on his fingers from so what? much from from driving around know. town, going I to ladies' houses, know. ringing doorbells. Yeah, sorry, it's a pretty cool trick. It was, and and then his boss can do it too. It's just everybody. Yeah, it's like I just really like you doing it for me, Walter. He saved it for the very end yeah. after Walter <laughs> was shot in the arm and couldn't do it himself. I mean. I, I can hardly strike a match on a striker, so like that's why I was like, man, if I had that skill, I'd be set. So anyway, and I yeah, get that why is my final thought there. Studios tamped it down, but it looks pretty cool. A character just sitting there, like contemplatively or or menacingly or whatever. Like you can put so much into a character just sitting in a chair smoking a cigarette. It just it looks so. I'm cool. gonna have to put an explicit label on our podcast. <laughs> Kids don't smoke, obviously. One of my favorite little uh, production tidbits about this film is that in a lot of the interior scenes, Billy Wilder and his cinematographer scattered metal filings into the air before shooting so that uh, the light that when they shot it through the camera, that the light would catch on those filings and make the, uh, you know, those that slanting light coming in through the Venetian blinds that much starker. Like they, they really worked hard to, to make sure that the contrast between light and shadow and that smoke curling through the air caught the light just right. Yeah. I, I heard that detail on a podcast. And I was like, that is wild. They're just like chucking metal in the air just to like get the black and white to look just. Probably works in actually smoking cigarettes. I know. Right? <laughs> that, I, I did think that too. I'm like, that's probably not good for you. And that's why they call it the silver screen. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I I love this movie. I'm glad I rewatched it. I um, and now I'm like I, I got to go back through uh Billy Wilder's filmography. Oh man, he's one of my very very favorite directors. He's so all of his films are so good, and uh, I know he's just got a really great sensibility that I I I personally click with a lot. So that'll be a rewarding rewatch. Maybe I should do that. There you go. <laughs> I, I thought I bought the apartment several years ago. I can't find it. I, I still haven't watched it. It's been on my watch list forever. I was like, I thought I bought it, and I, I can't seem to find it. Phil, well, we still got, um, and before we jump into shout-outs, do you want to announce, and we have a special giveaway just for listeners of this episode. Philip, you've got a Blu-ray, am I right? Copy? Yeah, so it, it just worked out that... Uh, Every November, the Criterion Collection has a Barnes and Noble sale where all their stuff, all their DVDs, Blu-rays, and now 4Ks as well, are fifty percent off. So, I went there a couple days ago, used the old Substance credit card, and grabbed a Criterion Blu-ray of Double Indemnity. Uh, currently, it's not streaming anywhere. You can buy it digitally, but it's not streaming anywhere. It was on HBO Max and Criterion Channel. But it's off of all those things, so the only way to get it is to buy it digitally or go to your local library or something. So we have or not a, buy it or not buy it and win it. Send from us an giveaway. email. Yeah, no, we uh, we have one copy to give away. So a lot of times we have multiples. This is a a one off, and like Trevor said, this one's just for people listening to this episode. We will not be promoting this one on social That's media. That's right. And so the only way you can find out how to en- enter. The giveaway is right here, right now. And what you got to do is you got to go to the substancepod at gmail.com. You got to send us an email. And the subject line has to be Walter's line here. Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. 
So you send this. Because it's a giveaway. Get, get it? it? Get it? Because you're not buying it. Remember, because I said that earlier, it was foreshadowing. So, Trevor, you want to say it one more time? Yeah. I'm sure people are yeah, yeah. the so 15 one more time. backwards again. Yeah. <laughs> send us an email at thesubstancepod at gmail.com. Subject line. Sorry, baby. I'm not buying. So get those in in the next week before our next episode is out, December 4th, and you will be entered. There you go. And now. Shout outs. Yeah. Kevin, we uh, ask all of our guests uh, on our segment, Substance Shoutouts, um, something that they've been enjoying from media, pop culture, books, things they've been reading, watching, enjoying, playing, whatever it is. So let the listeners know what has got you thinking or what you've been enjoying recently. Uh, so I just started reading uh, the new short story collection by George Saunders uh, that the title is Liberation Day. Um, and I'm enjoying it so far. Saunders is just an incredible fiction writer. He's primarily a short story writer, but he also uh, came out with his debut novel uh, about five years ago, I think called Lincoln and the Bardo, which is all about uh, the death of Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie. And uh, it's just a fantastic novel. Highly recommend that one to all of your listeners. Um, but he just released uh, his latest short story collection in October, and I'm catching up with it now. Uh, it's called Liberation Day, and just there's, there's nobody like him. I'm, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Wow. Very nice. I love short I love stories. it when we get such a, a high full-throated recommendation of something i've never heard of before i yeah he's there i don't know like i said there's no one like him i i if you do check track him down philip and and read him like let me know what you think i i need to do more prose fiction i feel like short stories are some of the highest form of like fiction prose as well because you have to you like to actually make it stick and make it memorable and real like there's so much you have to do in such a small space. Like you don't have pages and pages to, to get the plot or to color a character to make the person care or like flesh out the story. You got, you got to get it really concise. So, uh, I mean, here, here's how good George Saunders is. There was one short story of his, I was reading one of his collections in over lunch at a Chick-fil-A and it made me cry in the middle of Chick-fil-A. So, uh, <sighs> If that makes you more excited to check him out. Yeah. I love it when a movie, a book, a television show, what have you, just brings me to tears. It's, there's nothing dude, better. Dude, I don't watch This American, or I don't watch, I don't listen to This American Life at work for that reason, typically. This is just, it's going to be tears in the cubicle, man. <laughs> tears in the cubicle, it sounds like a, uh, like a pop rock like a album band there. Or something, yeah. Uh, Liberation Day, George. All right, that's a good one. All right. Uh, anything else, Kev? You want to uh, put on our I radars? Mean, this this is probably already on most people's radars. Uh, I just finished a reread of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion. Oh, nice. Um, nice. With you know Amazon streaming series that uh, just wrapped up its first season. I I figured it was time for me to go back and revisit that book. Which I'm a, I'm a huge Tolkien nerd. That's probably the biggest kind of nerd i am nice. is uh lord of the rings silmarillion the hobbit i just love all of his work and um, talking trevor's language here that's right oh yeah 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 just don't go and I, name all your com- companies after it but that's that's good yeah i love 
<laughs> I, I, I'm picking up what you're putting down there Trevor, yeah. uh, for sure. Um, I, I mean, we're, we're, we're running out of time, so I don't know how deeply want, we want to get into this, but, uh, I am curious to know what you thought of the rings of power. If you've had a chance to watch so, it. Yet. So far I've, I've stayed away. I'm, I'm not a, like a prime person and it kind of hurts my Tolkien loving soul that, um, it got into mm-hmm. Bezos's hands to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so I think I'll get around to it eventually, but I'm not, I'm just not ready yet. Just not. My soul's not ready for big TV shows. No, he had the big one that had either all three or all three plus The Hobbit. Yeah. It was like some mega Christmas. edition. He read it like 20 times when we were kids. I remember. I, I read a lot and I'm really enjoying. Uh, I told you I have uh, two kids. I'm going through The Hobbit with them right now. Mm. And like just seeing their wonder the first time is just joy. It's It's really wonderful. I I cannot wait for for my son to get to that age so I can read him The Hobbit. I'm I'm chomping yeah. at the bit to share that with him. Oh, and I can't even. I'm like, oh, just wait, guys. When you see what this ring is, you won't even. It's gonna blow your mind. <laughs> so, I'm really excited. Very nice. Well, um, so I will have links to seeing and believing, and uh, where, where else can people find you? Is there anything else that you would uh? have folks uh you want to direct them towards kevin uh i mean seeing and believing is kind of the the main place where i practice film criticism you know we it's a weekly podcast we we do a review uh of a new release and then a what we call the watch list pick where one host chooses a film that the other host hasn't seen sort of like what we did uh on on this show um one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen and we both watch it and then talk about it afterwards. So we do that like pretty much every single week. Um, you can find that on most uh, podcast catchers and uh, also on ChristPopCulture.com. You can also look me up on Twitter. I'm at McLengthy name on Twitter, but who knows how long that'll be around. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, I guess I also keep my my letterboxed account uh, well updated yeah. with what I've been watching lately. So if anyone wants to, you know, find me on there and and be friends on that social media platform. <laughs> did, uh, did you go ahead and reserve your Mastodon in case uh, all of society decides it wants to figure out how to use that thing? I I know that I'm getting old because I went onto Mastodon's website and I was just like, I don't understand any of this. So yeah. I might be too tech illiterate <laughs> at this stage of my life to make make the switch to a brand new platform like that. No, I kind of felt the Well, same it's way. always exciting for me when uh, the guest says, follow me on Letterboxd because that's, uh, that's my social media of choice. That's where <laughs> I probably spend the most of my time. It's uh, people who all love movies together talking about all sorts of movies so i will uh mm-hmm. be sure to put that in the notes and it hasn't happened yet but i'll also mention the uh seeing and believing podcast that you host with likely future guest of the substance uh sarah larson not related to josh that um we i've been talking with her i think next year we're going to get her on time uh sometime to talk uh alien oh man you're in for a treat sarah welch larson knows her her xenomorphs mm-hmm. and uh yeah she she's i mean she wrote she literally wrote the book on them she, she did that's yeah, why she I, saw, book, yeah. I was like well you wrote a book on alien from like a philosophical perspective that sounds like mm-hmm. why don't you come on so, and talk so you be on i mean if if i can offer a plug for somebody who isn't me i would highly recommend uh everyone uh check out sarah welch larson's uh book on 
feminism theology and the alien series she goes through mm. every movie in in that franchise and it's a really good read so right. readers uh who like that franchise should, uh, should check that out as well she's somebody i've been following for a while i really enjoy your back and forth on seeing and believing and uh yeah it was excellent to have you no thanks for coming on i like i said i love talking about film noir love double indemnity uh overjoyed to be able to do that on your show yeah, we'll say this too. Yeah. This is the end of November, but if people are making a watch list, are there any other one or two film noirs Ooh. that if people liked this, they'd say, "Hey, mm. if you want to chew on some more uh, <laughs> uh, deep darkness of humanity, check out these titles." Yeah. So, I mean, I already mentioned Sunset Boulevard, uh, directed by the same person, uh, featuring a Titanic performance from Gloria Swanson, just a lead role for the ages in in that film. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Big Sleep. So you have to, if you're going to watch film noir, you got to get some Humphrey Bogart in there. And I think The Big Sleep is probably... Uh, his best entry in there. You get a little bit of bogey in Bacall. Um, I'm also a big fan of Out of the Past. This is a, a Robert so Mitchum good. film that, uh, again, is maybe n- a, a little bit not what people think of when you think of like film noir, like the trench coats and the rainy streets, but it's so... I, I remember watching Out of the Past for the first time being like, this seems like a really well-kept secret. Why isn't this constantly mentioned hmm. uh in the same breath as something like double indemnity so all of those would be a great place to start i hmm. love it could not recommend those higher and listeners if you uh check those out be sure to uh tweet us instagram us dm us let us know i would love to hear about some people checking this out and getting into some good classical movies nice well kev uh delight having you on and having you to chat up double indemnity and just bringing all of the genre knowledge. So thanks for your time this evening. My pleasure. Awesome, man. We will catch you next time. So that was Kevin McLenathan from the Seeing and Believing podcast and the Christ and Pop Culture Network, as well as the Chicago Indie Critics. It was a fun conversation, fun movie. Go check it out. You think, uh, you think you're going to go down the noir rabbit hole a little bit more, Trev? I'm a little, I was a little curious about it. I mean, here's the deal. Like, I, I was listening to you talking about you had a ben wilder month and i'm like i had a billy wilder bill, yep, whatever, nailed it whatever. <laughs> whatever but uh and uh i was just like man i had a, like a i don't know survive month so um <laughs> i don't know well, this is very much in the off hours probably when i should have been sleeping but that's it's when, when i can do it there you when go. i can get it well in. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe if I ever get in the mood to stay up and watch movies, maybe. Yeah, I Sunset Boulevard is good. Let me know what you think of each. Oh, so I'll also say, yeah, yeah. Um, check me out check me here out. soon. If you're listening to this in the first couple of days, this will be coming out soon. Um, I believe November 30th is when... <laughs> Um, it should be dropping. I have an episode with Mike White of the Projection Booth coming out on Billy Wilder's probably what is widely considered his best film, Sunset Boulevard, which, Trevor, you know I'm prone to hyperbole. True. But I also want to I, I give art. It's, uh, I, I don't want to be too hyperbolic about art, but after revisiting Sunset Boulevard a few times, studying it, watching it, preparing for that movie, like... 
strong contender for top 10 of all time, the movie itself. Um, and I hope I did. I, I, I was a little nervous about it, but I was, I was, I was proud of how it went towards the end. So definitely check out that movie, but I feel like that movie's so much about cinema. It's like so much about itself that like, if you watch other movies, you would appreciate it more. It's like, if you just start with sunset Boulevard, I don't know how fully effective that would be. But anyway, if you're interested in film, is that confusing, Trevor? I'm thoroughly confused at this point. Um, But I do know we just did a whole hour on a film with the theme of hubris. (laughs) And you let us into the segment with check me out. So I'm I'm sold. I might be. Good one. (laughs) Check out the show. Um, And then, yeah, check us out. (laughs) That's right. TheSubstancePod.com. And don't forget, before we do social media plugs and our supporter plugs, a reminder again, if you're interested in winning that Criterion Blu-ray, send us that email there at thesubstancepod at gmail.com with the subject line. What is it again, Trev? Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. Very Sorry, baby, I'm not buying. That's very good. That's very Trevor, and it's perfect for this episode. I loved it when you brought that idea. Thanks, fan. Um, Yep. Jump on that giveaway, get your entry in, just do that. Is that the end of the sentence? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the substance, uh, we do not have Patreon. We have the anchor support. It's the same thing. You can uh, click the anchor link in the show notes if you like what we do. You want to join the substance family here. You can do so at 5 or $10 a month there. Or if you really like this show, like I like this. Yeah, I'll give those guys a couple bucks without any commitment. You can do so at Cash App at dollar sign the Substance Pod, and we appreciate every single person and every single dollar that comes our way. It's helpful. It helps us do cool giveaways like we're doing today. Absolutely, we've got our website thesubstancepod.com, as well as our email thesubstancepod at gmail.com. So you can comment there. You can. Um, message us obviously you already heard about the giveaway so you can be using the email for that but yeah send us thoughts comments show ideas all those kind of things interact with us there as well as on twitter or facebook um, if either of those things are still around by the time you're listening to this that's true more importantly tell a friend shoot us some comments that's right tell a friend if you like the show share the substance love and uh We'll actually see you next week. That's right. If you're here yeah. listening to Do shows as they drop, because this is a bonus. Come back next week for our next episode of The Substance. I shall taunt you a second time. To the part where it all farts.